So I'm Pastor Michael. On the um, occasion of the new year, I wanted to reflect on the past two. And uh, it's been nearly two years now since the pandemic began. I remember vividly um, those early weeks in 2020, watching the news out of China, and then Seattle, and then it was in Italy. And I remember the, the school shut down, and um, the conditions, the, the rules were literally changing every day. And it ended up being that March 7th was our last Sunday that we were all together worshiping at Marshall Elementary School. And then we met one more time on March 15th. It was a truncated service at the clubhouse. And then March 22nd, we went virtual. And here we are nearly two years later. And I wish I could say the last two years have been great. Things have never been better. We have gone from strength to strength. But the reality is that it's been a very challenging season of ministry. It's been the toughest in the history of our church. There have been many controversies and departures and disagreements. And it's not all bad news. We have new people. We've made new partnerships. The gospel has been faithfully preached. But on, let me pause. But on the balance, on the net, um, I know for many people, it has been discouraging to witness all of the losses and setbacks And so how should we evaluate the past two years? I, I want to pastor you in this moment. And I want to open my heart to you. As your pastor, it has been tough for me. And I've had a long time to think about it. I've wrestled in prayer. I've meditated on scripture. And I want you to know that I've come to a place of deep peace and joy. And I believe, and I believe this with all of my heart, that this pandemic is God's hand upon our church. And I believe that the purpose of this pandemic is to plant in our hearts, if we will receive it, a wellspring of joy. And I believe that this is how God has always worked in the church and in the ministry of the gospel. And I want to show you this by looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. Because when we look at his life, when we look at his labors for the gospel, we see this same pattern, this same principle at work. And so with that in mind, Please uh, open your bulletins. I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. You can follow along also on your screens. Paul writes, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is the word of God. So, let me give you some background to understand this text. The Apostle Paul planted this church. You could read about it in Acts 18. So that he was their spiritual father. In fact, this is how he describes himself in the letter. And it was a very dynamic church full of gifted people, uh, many of whom were wealthy and accomplished in their lives, um, which we shouldn't be surprised by because Corinth was a very prosperous and prominent city in the Roman Empire. But it was also a very difficult and contentious relationship. And there were a number of people in the church who were very critical of Paul. And they were critical of him because his ministry seemed like failure. Because he was always under persecution. He was always facing opposition. He was always being imprisoned. His life was always in danger. And so people in the church were, were asking, how can Paul be an apostle if his ministry is so full of weakness? Do you know what an apostle is? The, uh, the word apostle in the Greek literally means one who is sent. Basically, it means an envoy. Because you have to understand that before uh, there were telephones, before, you know, email and electronic communications, the way a king would communicate and, and speak to another king or to his people is that he would have to send a personal emissary or ambassador. And so that's what an apostle was. An apostle represented King Jesus. So imagine that in our country, one day an ambassador arrives. And this ambassador claims that he represents, he has been personally sent by this great king from a faraway land who is very powerful. And he has important messages for us. But when you observe his life, you notice that this ambassador dresses in clothing that he purchased at a thrift store. You notice that at night, he sleeps in a homeless shelter. 
and he travels by day on public transportation. What would you think of him? You would think, well, this king he represents must not be very impressive. Look at who he has sent. That's what the Corinthians were struggling with. Look at Paul. How can Paul be an apostle of the Messiah, the King of Kings? And so Paul wrote Second Corinthians in response. And it is his most raw and emotional epistle, his most emotional letter. And the whole letter is a defense of his apostleship. And it is among the most beautiful writings in the Bible. If you haven't read Second Corinthians in a while, I encourage you to read it again. And I want to start here by noticing how Paul defends his ministry. Because Paul does not cite any statistics. He doesn't rattle off all of the uh, various churches that he has successfully planted, and he planted many. He doesn't mention all of the baptisms, all of the conversions, or all of the you know ministry programs that he no doubt started. He doesn't use any traditional metrics of success. Instead, instead he lists his afflictions. He recounts all of his griefs and losses, all of his humiliations, all of his rejections, all those things which in this world were signs of failure, were signs that he was cursed, not blessed by God. Those very things which condemned him in the eyes of the Corinthians, Paul reverses and says they are the marks of his apostleship. They are the signs that God's power and grace are working in his life. Because, and this is Paul's point, adversity and suffering do not negate. They do not work against the ministry of the of the gospel. In fact, they are the very signs of authentic gospel work. They are the very marks of authenticity. This is very hard for us to grasp. You know, we live in a world of superficial appearances. We live in a world of optimized presentation. And I think this is most obvious in social media, although I think it goes far beyond social media. You know, I know a lot of you don't use social media, but I think it's the most blunt and unsubtle on social media because everyone on social media lives these curated lives. Right? Everyone sort of carefully selects sort of the best moments to share. And it gives you the impression that everyone is living their best life now. Everyone is going from strength to strength. No one has any problems. And we know it's an illusion. We know. We know that, you know, that family photo on vacation where everyone is smiling just moments afterwards, there was a huge meltdown. Or that very night, the parents got into a huge fight that went well past midnight. How come nobody posts photos of those moments? We know it's an illusion. And I <laughs> I know it's really trendy to bash social media. And I'm not saying social, social media is is all bad, you know. 
there's some bad parts to it. You know, it's perfectly fine to share photos of your life to your friends and family. But my point is that there's a selectivity here. And we all know these are selected moments, but we can't help but to compare. And we can't help but to feel bad about ourselves and to wonder, why is my own life such a mess by comparison? Can I let you in on a little secret? Churches do this too. We share only good news. We post only happy updates. All of the, in all of the church photos, everyone is smiling. And it's not out of deception or malice. We genuinely want to be uplifting and encouraging. But very subtly, very subtly, what we're saying, I think, is this is how you measure success. And we can start to evaluate church the way you evaluate a company. Like at your workplace, in your annual review, how do you measure performance and success? You look at the corporate balance sheet, right? You look at the quarterly profits. Are they up or down? You look at the numbers. What are the sales numbers? What are the production numbers? Is the trend line up or down? And I think we can start to look at churches in the same way because you know what? We have numbers too. We have attendance. We have budget. We have these concrete metrics that you can measure. But when you read 2 Corinthians, Paul defines success in ministry very differently. And for the rest of our time, I want to look at Paul's vision for gospel ministry. And I want you to see how countercultural it is. And in the text, he identifies three essential marks for true Christian ministry. And they are, number one, Enduring adversity. Number two, possessing godly character. And then number three, and we're going to spend most of our time here, paradox. Paradox. So number one, enduring adversity. Look with me to verses four and five. Paul writes, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So Paul here is commending his ministry Right, And so this is his defense. What is his defense? How does he commend himself? Listen to this. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. So notice that afflictions and calamities and Calamity is like one of my favorite words. It basically means great disaster, right? So great disasters, notice, are not rude interruptions to ministry. They are not detours off the path and we're trying to get back on path. But what Paul is saying here is they are normal. They are regular components of the path. He, are, he is saying they are authentic marks of gospel ministry. And therefore, we should expect them. 
we should expect them. I think that so much of the trauma of ministry difficulties is we say to ourselves, Oh no! This shouldn't be happening! Something is terribly wrong! And so we panic. It feels like a crisis. But listen to what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So what Peter is saying here is that problems, difficulties, trials, means we are on the right track. We are exactly where we are supposed to be. Not in any human plan. I would have never designed the past two years to be the way it is. But we are exactly where we are supposed to be in the plan of God. And then so, and then second, notice how we are to respond to these trials. Peter says that we are to respond with joy, rejoicing. We're going to get back to that later. But Paul in our text says that we are to respond with endurance. In fact, he says great endurance. Now, the Greek word for endurance is a fantastic word. It's the word hypomeno. Hypo, hypo or hyper means strong, intense, super, right? Like hyper. And then meno means to stay or to stand. And so hypomino literally means to stand intensely, right? To hyperstand. It means that when you are facing tremendous pressure, you don't budge an inch. But you stand and stand and stand in one place. You endure. You persevere. You are steadfast. In fact, that that English word steadfast comes directly from the Greek word. Steadfast literally means stand hold. You stand hold. That is, in the Christian life, that is an essential mark of Christian ministry. So that's the first point. We are to endure adversity. The second point is that we are to possess, we are to exhibit godly character. Look with me to verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left. And so again, this is Paul's defense of his ministry. And notice, Paul does not mention what is undoubtedly the fact that he was perhaps the greatest preacher and evangelist in the history of the church. Notice he doesn't mention his vast knowledge of scripture, his superior debating skills. He doesn't mention any competencies or skill sets. Instead, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about the characteristics of a godly heart. You see, if ministry is about skill and ability, then it's about human strength. 
then man gets all the glory. But if ministry is instead what Paul says in earlier in the letter in chapter 4, he says, we hold this treasure in jars of clay. And what he means by that is that human beings are these weak vessels that carry, that, that, that hold the real treasure. You see, the jars of clay is itself not the treasure. It carries the treasure. And what is the treasure? It's the saving message of Jesus Christ. And if that is your paradigm for ministry, then ministry is about humility. It's about lowliness of heart. It's about knowing that you are a weak vessel. And if that is your understanding, then hardships and adversity and all of those seasons when ministry seems to be going backwards, not forward, when it just seems like we're just experiencing a string of defeats and failures, when ministry feels like we're just stalled and we're going nowhere, all those things actually serve the purposes of God because through them, God is shaping you. You see, what hardship does, what hardship does is that it strips you of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. Hardship grabs you by the neck and then it throws you down and then it lays you low and it completely flattens you, right? So that you're at the utter end of yourself. And then in that place of emptiness, God can finally use you. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. The single, listen to me, the single greatest qualification for Christian ministry is not confidence and swagger. It is a broken and lowly heart. And then God could do his mighty works in your life. Third, the essence of Christian ministry is paradox. Look with me to verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You cannot understand the Christian life and you cannot understand Christian ministry until you understand this profound mystery that as a follower of Jesus Christ, your life will be marked by paradox. And Paul lists several paradoxes in the text here, but I just want to focus on one. In in verse 10, he says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, I've thought about this verse for a long time. And it's had a big impact on my heart this past year. And I just want to walk you through the profound beauty and mystery of this verse. Because what Paul is saying here is that in the Christian life, 
and in Christian ministry, sorrow overlaps with joy. Sorrow coexists with joy. And the key word here is always. Because without that word always, then what Paul would be saying is, well, sometimes you sorrow and sometimes you rejoice. And they alternate, right? Like seasons in a year, right? Sometimes things are going well in life. Sometimes things go bad. And then joy and sorrow is our sort of emotional response to those circumstances so that you're happy when things are up, sad when things are down. We all understand that principle. But because Paul says always, he's saying joy and sorrow do not alternate. They are simultaneous in our life. We experience them simultaneously so that joy happens inside of sorrow. This is beyond human categories, okay? Joy is in and through sorrow. How can this be? You know, for the vast majority of human beings, we think that the way to get joy is that you have to resolve your problems. If you could just solve your money problems, if you could just solve your health problems, if your family problems or your romance problems or your work problems can be solved, then then you'll be happy, then you'll be content. The problem is that if joy is based on the absence of problems, then your joy will be quite fragile. And in a moment's notice, it could be swept away. Because the reality is that there's always new problems. Life is full of unlimited problems. And so if you're going to have a resilient joy that lasts and lasts and lasts, you're going to have to find a joy that coexists with your problems. If you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, his life was full of problems. It was full of suffering and rejection. And the the language he uses here is quite strong because the word he uses here doesn't just mean sorrow. It literally means full of sorrow. It means deep sadness, intense grief. And notice that Paul does not disconnect himself from grief because, you know, that is one answer to the problem of suffering which is to detach, which is to become a cynic, which is to say, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But the only way you can get there is that you have to close your heart. Because to love is to become vulnerable to suffering. This is why Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. If you read the Gospels, he was always weeping. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is why Paul's life was full of sorrow. Do you know why? Because Christian ministry is suffering. Because the church is full of broken people. And broken people will wound you. If you want to be insulated from pain, stay on the periphery of church. 
don't get involved. Because the deeper in you go, the more your heart will be laden with grief. But I also want you to know that the deeper in you go, the more you will discover depths of joy you didn't know was possible. Because here is the secret of ministry. Sorrow will drive you into God. What suffering does is it removes all these other comforts in your life. All of these sort of support structures that are holding you up will be knocked away. And as you fall, as you fall, it's a terrible feeling, you will discover resources of joy you never had and never knew you needed. Imagine that you're in a room and it's this uh, bright room because all the lights are on, but you turn off all the lights. You close all the shutters. And then you notice in the middle of the room is this candle burning. And as your eyes adjust to the darkness, the candlelight grows brighter and brighter until it becomes this shining, beautiful light. You see, grief and failure is turning off the lights of pride, of selfish ambition. They're all gone because all of your plans, all of your ambitions for the future are shattered. And then in the darkness, you will see the grace and the love of God shining like a beacon. There's a wonderful story um, in Tim Keller's book on suffering, which I think is the best book he has written. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I highly recommend it. At the end of each chapter, he has a testimonial of someone who's going through intense grief, intense suffering. There's There's this particular story that I want to share with you. It's the true story of a woman named Emily. Emily grew up in the church. All of her life, she was a faithful Christian. And she says that she had much to be thankful for. Her life was full of good things. She had a nice home. She had a a job that was satisfying and fulfilling. She had a wonderful family. A husband who loved her. Four children who are happy and healthy. And then she says, one day, it was a fall day in September, out of the blue, her husband announced to her that he was leaving her and leaving the children. He had fallen in love with another woman who was actually a close friend of hers. She was going to leave her husband and they were going to live together. Emily says that her heart died within her. She couldn't comprehend what was happening. Her husband was a believer. He had made solemn vows on their wedding day that he would never forsake her. She sobbed and she begged him not to leave. She said, let's work this out. We can figure a way out. And he said, no, I'm leaving. She said, what are you going to tell the children? He said, I don't know. She said, well, you're going to have to be the one to tell them. And she thought that's when it's going to hit him. 
when he looks into their precious eyes, he's not going to be able to go through with it. He called them downstairs from bed. And then he calmly told them that he loved them, but that he was leaving. The children were crushed. The next weeks and months, she said, she descended into anger and bitterness. She said it was like living in a nightmare. She would pray desperately for God to bring her husband back to her. She would pray for vengeance. She would pray to be healed. Meanwhile, her life situation only got worse. Her finances were destroyed. Her home, she lost her home eventually through foreclosure. Her children were dealing with the fallout. They were confused, angry, depressed. Her oldest son, who was 14 years old, started questioning his faith. He started rebelling against authority. He started doing poorly in school. She still had to deal with her husband, who would come on visits to the children with her girlfriend. She says it was agony upon agony. She was struggling to hold on to God's goodness. And then she wrote this in her testimony, and I want to read it to you. Listen to this. I've never had a big tragedy in my life. I've never really had to depend on God. I mean, sure, I prayed and I saw God work, but not like this. I never had the need to rely on God, truly just fall and rest on Him. When I needed God's comfort, the image in my head was me clinging to Jesus and then Him hugging me back. And then listen to this. My image now is me just completely collapsed and Him carrying me. And it is beautiful. At the end of her testimony, she has this wonderful insight. She says that she tells her children all the time. She says that in every fairy, in every fairy tale, there is always some great tragedy where the main character, the hero or the heroine of the story faces some impossible obstacle And it seems hopeless. It seems like certain doom. And then the hero or the heroine of the story has to dig down deep and they have to find and they discover resources of strength they didn't know they had. And then somehow, somehow they overcome the hardship and they get through on the other side where joy and celebration is greater than the sorrow. And then she tells her children, she says, God has put us in a fairy tale. And right now we're in the part of the story where we're facing an impossible obstacle. But God is with us and he is guiding us through to the other side and awaiting us there is glory. I love that. I believe that God is writing a beautiful story with our church. 
And we are now almost 12 years into that story. And there's a lot more of the story that's left. And you know, every good story has dark chapters where things look bleak, where the main group of characters faces impossible odds, where there doesn't seem to be a way out. All hope seems lost. And you can't imagine how it could possibly end well. But God is the author of our story. And he's a good author. And he has already written the ending. And therefore, we can trust him. And you know, the right response, therefore, to these dark chapters is not to be anxious or fearful, but by faith to continue down the path one step at a time and to take the adventure as it comes to us with joy because he is with us. I want to close with this final reflection. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this. Listen to this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what this text is saying is that on the cross, Jesus had to endure. It's the same Greek word, hypomener, hypomeno, hyperstand. On the cross, Jesus stood and stood and stood and he didn't budge an inch. And he took hell itself. All of the wrath, all of the judgment that we deserve was poured out on him And he stayed. Do you think it was the nails that held him there? Why did he stay? Because of the joy that was set before him. What was his joy? Deuteronomy 7, 6. We looked at this a few weeks ago. We are his treasured possession. God owns a billion galaxies. But his most treasured possession is us. Ephesians 1.4 says, Before the foundation of the world, He set His love on us. We are the apple of His eye. We are His beloved bride. Don't you see? We are His joy. On the cross, Jesus endured all the fullness of hell, all the grief and suffering and sorrow of human sin and evil, so that he might possess this precious treasure that he must he might have us forever if we are his joy then he can become ours when we fix our eyes on Jesus when we meditate on his love when we press his goodness and his glory into our hearts, then he will become our joy. He will become this immovable treasure that can never be shaken, that we can never lose, no matter what the circumstances, no matter the storms that blow. And then, 
we can endure anything and all the world's sorrows will only drive us deeper into his love. That's the secret of ministry and that's the secret of the Christian life. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you taught us that in this life we will have many troubles, but that we are to take heart for you will never leave us You will never forsake us. And let this be a deep comfort, even as we face all kinds of hardships and grief and rejection. Lord, impress on us this truth. The secret to joy is Christ in us, not us in different circumstances. Help us to endure these present troubles with faith and joy. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.